September 11, 2011, lecture discussion number intermission review three, and I'll repeat that in just a second because obviously this being September 11th and the 10 year, um, 10 years from that event of that uh, attack um, that um, came, frankly, because of our support for the nation of Israel. And ultimately, you will see that it all boils down to that primarily eventually, as it should, as is predicted in Scripture. People ask me about the significance of it, and I tell them all the time, the significance of it really is that it is the beginnings of Ezekiel 38. That's what it is. It is Assyria separating from Babylon because that attack and by the way, and people ask me all the time why I don't like to call it a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. It is an act of evil. It is an act of deliberate free will evil. That's what it was, and that's what it will be if it happens again. It isn't a tragedy. A tragedy is a tornado or an earthquake or a flood. Those are tragedies. A lightning storm or a fire maybe even that happens by some natural means if there's uh, such a definition, but nonetheless, this is a free will decision to kill, and it is not a tragedy. It is premeditated act. And so uh, this, however, precipitated Assyria separating from Babylon. If you go back, you'll know that Asher was a son of Shem and Nimrod a son of Ham. And so this is so ancient when you begin to look at it um, through the history of time or through the timeline. Uh, Assyria finally becoming Assyria again. Now we'll call it Kurdistan, but it is the land of Asher, the son of Shem. It is the Assyrian Empire. And it is not just separated from Babylon, it is separated from Turkey. Of course, it doesn't want to be separated from Turkey because Assyria knows that Turkey has some of its ancient uh, territory. And so it's fascinating to see that as a direct result to that attack. That's why I, I tell you that that attack was the beginning of Ezekiel 38, where Turkey and Persia and, um, and perhaps even Libya, we're not sure about Libya, but certainly Russia and parts of Germany and parts of uh, France, at least the parts that are now occupied by Islam, begin this, uh, uh, this uh, southern descent to, in, to attack Israel. So what we saw ten years ago was the beginning of that process. Ultimately, as I said, Assyria comes out of that. And that or you want to say Kurds or the Kurd, uh, Kurdistan, that's fine know that it is Assyria. So that is the great significance of it, and we're 10 years from that. And I remember because September 11th is, is my son's birthday and my dad's birthday, and my nephew was born on September 10th, so we had an opportunity to have a birthday of um, event, if you will. Uh, and I, I talked to them about that. I told them that war was coming. Not just any war, but the Ezekiel 38 war is coming. And that, I believe, will happen in our lifetimes. At least I hope it does. How's that? I really do hope it does. How come? Because that means the door is starting to close, right? Or open, whichever view you wish to have. In any event, uh, things are wrapping up. And I would like them to wrap up. Why? Because that's pretty much my retirement plan, yes. Okay, here we go again. September 11, 2011, lecture discussion number, intermission review three. And yes, that means we are still treading water, so to speak, uh, idling the bus. I'm waiting for the bulk of the class to return. You see, they haven't returned, haven't you? And recombined with us um, because we are uh, going through the last... Thank you, Pat, for doing that. Thank you. Uh, he turned the lights off in my face, for those of you who listen to the Internet. But anyway, I'm waiting for the bulk of the class to recombine because this is what we call the August panic, uh, the last week of August panic here in Alaska, and it moves itself into uh, September. The first week or so of the August panic includes September uh, maybe the first 10 days, and that's where every Alaskan tries to cling to summer um, irrationally. And they cram every conceivable activity into what the few days they have left to, to, uh, have summer. And it's usually fishing. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, procrastinated house repairs. And sometimes it's the state fair. 
which is what it was last week. And you, you know, as you know, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, but some people go to the Alaska State Fair and they do what? They camp there. Have you ever seen those people? They camp. They camp in the parking lot. There's a special parking lot set up for people who will go to the Alaska State Fair and camp there. Do you do that? Okay. You're in the sermon today. Not really, because I know what you're doing. But there are, there are people who do that, and for two to three weeks, they go to the fair every single day, 12, 14 hours a day. Now, you don't do that, do you? On the weekend, you just go for two days. Maybe three. Okay. There are some who do it for weeks, and they don't miss a day. Every day they go, and they get the rain and the wind and the dust and the smell. And it does not deter these people. That's what they do. They set their whole summer up to do this. It's their mission. And and I have, as you know, vast experience uh, evaluating human behaviors. I'm very well experienced. If you don't know that, it's true. I am. And I cannot explain this three-week uh, behavior for those who do this. I submit that no one can explain it, and um, and I don't even know how to begin. Just how much fair food can be eaten, I wonder, before the human body collapses and has this spasmodic retching, um, a seizure... The people that do this, they know the answer to that question. They can answer that. They know exactly. They've had much testing. They, they eat that fair food for three weeks. They made a movie about a guy that ate McDonald's for what? A couple of months, almost died. These people eat fair food for three, four weeks. How do they survive? They, I don't know. And they also know how much the giant pumpkin weighs. This is a test. Please don't answer it. How much does the giant pumpkin weigh? If you know... Oh, my goodness. 1,723 pounds. Is that right? Does anybody know that? Was it disqualified? Steroids, wasn't it? It was steroids. Oh, there's a hole in the bottom. Okay. Does it occur to you that knowing that might put you into this group? Does it? You only went once. Okay. Good. Good, thank you. But these people also know how to remove seven coats of face paint. And I can help you with that if you need to know. That lacquer thinner will work. 60 grit sandpaper. You can get battery operated equipment now or cordless and it'll take it right off. And they know that what John and I know because John and I went, of course, and Bill and Bonnie and uh, I know that, uh, and Kathy and Emily. I know that you can you can buy a three dollar knife sharpener for twenty bucks. Or she she actually had a special deal. She said you can buy it, right, John? You can buy the three dollar knife sharpener made in Taiwan for twenty bucks, or you can get three for sixty. <laughs> Dead truth, wasn't it? That is exactly what she said. We just looked at her like, wow, you are used to dealing with a certain kind of people. But this is why I brought it all up today, because of this. Everybody who went to the fair, if you went to the fair, you all got cards like this one. Did you get a card like this one? Well, Bonnie did. I didn't actually get it handed to me, much to my sadness, because I really wanted one. And I took Bonnie's. It's true, I am sad that I didn't get one, because the folks go and they hand them to you. And I, I want one really bad, and they never give it to me. That makes me sad, because I very much enjoy these folks that hand these cards out. I want them to give me this kind of thing. I always take them. I'm very friendly, as you know. But Bonnie was given it, and like I said, she gave it to me. And it says on the front, it says this, I am a soul, I have a body. Let me repeat that for you. It says, I am a soul. I have a body. So far, so good. I often say something very similar, don't I? I say it a lot. I say to you that you are a living, immortal spirit soul. That's what you are. That's your essence. That's the definition of you. 
You are a living, immortal spirit soul that has a physical body. You are a soul. You have a physical body. Very close. And as you can see, I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting, but uh, you can see it has a young woman's face on it. I've put a staple right in the middle, not intentionally there, but I just happened to staple it so I wouldn't forget it. It has a staple. I'm sorry. It has a picture of a young woman's face with a light shining right above her eyes, between her eyes, and you can come up and get it in a minute. That It's shining from the forehead, and what is that? That's the pineal gland, isn't it? That's dimethyltryptamine. That's uh, Rene Descartes, and that's Cartesian geometry. See me later for that. But that's not an accident that they put that light there. They know what it means. Anyway, whenever you, when you flip it over, it says this. And I'll try to read it with the appropriate emotion. I don't think I can. I have to have a drink of soda. It's not easy. This is, uh, I'm a trained professional and don't, don't try this. You illuminate the path to success through the light of your inner Now, what is that? That is psychoblather. It is, it is gob, gobby gluck. It is drivel. It's hooey. You pick whatever you want, but that's what it is. Also included is a little website here on the back, and I won't give them any, uh, any uh, advertisement uh, and a phone number where you can call and you can sign over the title to your car or your house or your, you can give them your dividend check. And it's a shame, really, because I am a soul, I have a body, is absolutely true. You illuminate the path to success through the light of your inner contentment is hopey-dopey, new-agey, feely-weely, I don't know what it is, free-willy, is that... Uh. But it's some mystic, cryptic saying, and, and it's sad because it's an opportunity missed, an opportunity lost. You see, I want to know why not put the most obvious of the obvious questions on the reverse of the card. That would make the most sense to me. The questions that I would have asked them had they given me the card. And I, again, I wanted them to hand me a card. I go through the whole fair hoping somebody will hand me a card. And I never get a card, and they're really starting to bug me. And they don't come to my house anymore. I thought it was the hat. And so I bought a new hat, and I got a really nice hat. First time after 15 to 20 years, I finally bought a hat. I didn't like it exactly, but it was the best I can do. It does make me look taller. <laughs> Ask Kathy what else it does. But anyway, the people with the cards, they avoid me. Pretty much they run away in the opposite direction, uh, just like the horses and the small children. So I do, I'm trying too hard. I'm trying too hard. I'm trying so hard to look like a sucker fish. I want the card, and I want to talk to them, and it doesn't work. That's my Cliffside Community Chapel T-shirt idea, by the way. Uh, Cliffside Community Chapel, changing sucker fish into sharks. That's my plan, as you know. Instead of this inner contentment nonsense and, and the like, how about why? Are you a living soul? How did you become a living soul? What is your purpose? Do you have free will? Can a living soul evolve from a primordial soup? How do I evolve a living soul? How about, are you accountable to your Creator? Why are you accountable to your Creator? Why does your physical body die? What is the cause of death? Who made you? From what material? What is a living soul made out of? What is it made from? Put those on the card. Trust me, people wouldn't throw it away. Everybody would want a card. I would help them. He says this, doesn't he? Christ does. God in the flesh. The Word made flesh. He says this. Today... You will be with me in paradise. He says that to the thief on the cross. Today, you, 
the spirit soul that is you will be with me in paradise. That is God's definition of what a you is and what a him is or what a me is. It is a spiritual definition, not a physical definition. Okay? So let me put the card aside. It's available if you would like it. You just have to X out the back. Last couple of weeks, excuse me, I backed up the dump truck and I unloaded um, uh, a typical cliffside list. And there it is on the most holy platinum model reversible drive race board there. Uh, all of that list pertains to the Hebrew marriage ceremony, which is in your bulletin. And I hope you have it. It is the things... now. It is not the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. It is things that are attached to the Hebrew betrothal marriage ceremony um, context, if you will. It's the things that you need to know in order to understand and solve a large part of what Christ does and says in the New Testament. And, of course, a large part of what happens in the Old Testament as well. <clears throat> you need to understand it and you need to know what it is so that you don't misinterpret the Scripture. So you don't fall into error in uh, which so many are trapped today. And so let's take a hard run at this and, and probably next Sunday as well. Um, and the next and the next, I have a feeling. Uh, we're going to be putting aside for now, for just a few weeks, the paradoxes of interference the theological implications of interferometry, the study of interferometers, as you know. That's more stuff, by the way, that needs to be on the back of the card. And that's probably the Cliffside Community Chapel uh, motto. You're going to need a bigger card. Okay. Should reread the 12 steps and review last Sunday a bit, um, then we'll take on this list let me give you a few scriptures as examples. No one knows but my Father only. Matthew twenty four thirty six. But only the Father. Mark thirteen thirty two. I go prepare a place for you. John fourteen three. My Father is greater than I. John fourteen twenty eight. It is not for you to know times or seasons. Acts 1-7. You shall receive power. Acts 1-7. Let me first say, let me repeat this. No one knows but my Father. My, my Father only. My Father is greater than I. If one thing you ever learned from me about Christ is that He says my Father, what do we say? We say our Father or the Father. He says my Father. That puts him in a godhood position. He's declaring his deity when he does that. Okay, Understand that. It's very important to know. But again, let's go back to these verses again. All of those aforementioned verses have a Hebrew betrothal marriage ceremony application or context. Every one of them. If you don't understand the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, you will struggle with each and every one of those verses. If we can get these steps... And these accompanying places in Scripture that are on the board here, where they arise, or if you can get them seared into your mind or our minds. In other words, being able to recognize the marriage betrothal language when it shows up in Scripture. Being able to understand the steps so that you recognize it. Being able to find them where they show up in the Old and the New Testament. How they fit together, what they symbolize, what God Christ is using them to teach us. Having that skill set, that's a skill set. That's finding the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, the marriage ceremony that God gave to the nation of Israel that is a God-ordained, God-given ordinance. Man has nothing to do with marriage. It is all God's. Having an understanding of why and what he's doing with it helps you when you read your Bible, understand your Bible correctly. If you don't have it, down goes Frazier. It's a skill set. It, it moves the Bible student from mistake-prone novice to someone who can correctly discern, interpret the Holy Bible. That's what it does. And so what do I hope? I hope that everyone wants, wishes to do it. But as you know, I've said, many supposed teachers of the Bible, they want to be something. What do they want to be? 
They want to be a couple of things. They want to be ignorant. They really do. You would ask, why does anybody want to be ignorant? Well, they really do want to. They have a good reason for wanting to. They want to be wrong. Why do they want to be wrong? Who would want to be wrong? There's a lot of money and a lot of power in being wrong. The only thing worse than being wrong is to know you're wrong and not care. There are a lot of people who know they're wrong and they don't care. Where can you find them? You can turn on TV. They have purple hair and they sit in big blue chairs. Not to mention any names. That's what they do. And they'll hold up an envelope and they'll say, I got a letter from Fred. I'm praying for Fred right now. Please, Fred. And then you can go out to the dumpster and there's millions of those envelopes, hundreds of thousands of those envelopes in there and they're all opened. How come they're all opened? They took the money out of them and they dumped them in the trash because they know they're wrong and they like being wrong. And they're going to stay wrong. Huge followings in of the wrong. The wrong have many, many people. People, by the way, get attached to their error and they begin to deeply love being wrong. And no amount of truth and evidence will dissuade them. They're going to stick to it because they love it. And they don't care. Bill and I were told one time, he's not here today, but if he were, he would stand up and tell you that it was one of the most stunning things we'd ever heard. We asked somebody once, Does the truth matter? No, she said back to us. The truth doesn't matter. And I learned that's the case. Truth doesn't matter to very many people. You'll see it in every debate you wish to think about. Political, theological, evolution, creation. Truth doesn't matter. So, like I said, they begin to deeply love being wrong, and you can't dissuade them. In Proverbs 1.22, I say it a lot here. I'm going to reword it today, but I'll say it right correctly. How long will you love the simple, O simple ones? That's something that God says, and he's saying it to the saved. How long will you love the simple? How long will you do it? Why don't you stop doing it? How come you do it? I'll put it better. How long do you like being wrong? Not better. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I will make it different, but it's the same essential meaning. How long will you love being wrong, O wrong ones? Because the simple is what? Mostly wrong. If it's simple, be afraid. Now, Scripture is, is, I don't want to say simple. It is such that some treasure is on the surface and some is below the surface, and some is way below the surface, and you have to work. Some is given to you right off the bat, but some you have to dig for. Why won't you dig? It's hard. That's right. And there isn't any money in it, by the way. It is a commitment of the will. And that is why I rattled off, but only the Father, but my Father only, my Father is greater than I. I go prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself. It is not for you to know times or seasons you shall receive power because all of those, again, have a betrothal marriage context. Not being able or not being willing to see that causes interpretive error. If you don't know what you don't know, you're in trouble here. You have to know that those have a Hebrew betrothal marriage context and that if you take them outside that context and make some conclusion that is aside from or alone from that context, error will be the result, I promise you. So we're going to endeavor to strike a blow for knowledge and push back the frontiers of biblical illiteracy. Okay, last Sunday I asked a whole bunch of questions. Maybe you didn't hear them because I didn't always put them in question form. I just raised them for you and I'll do it again here. Why does God hate divorce? Malachi 2.16. What does that verse mean? What's the first thing now after you've listened to the, uh, part of the, this part of the sermon? What's the first thing you should ask about Malachi 2.16? 
Why does God hate divorce? What's divorce? What's the context of that verse? Do you suspect that there's a Hebrew marriage context to it? What divorce is he talking about? Does it have an application besides you? By the way, here's newsflash. It isn't always about you or me or us. Now, I have, I have one 14-year-old in the audience who is related to me. He is 14. On the job site, we call him L14. We'll talk about what that means if he'll care to tell you. He even has tools now that are stamped L14. He is absolutely positive that the entire universe and the world revolves around him. He's positive of it. That's okay. How come? Because he's 14. If you think that all of Scripture is about you first and foremost, what are you? You are 14. Now, does the Bible apply to you? Is all Scripture applicable to you? Yes. But it is about the glory of God. It is about the glory of Christ, who is God in the flesh. It isn't about you very often, primarily. There are times it is about you, primarily. And you should read those verses with a lot of dread and solemn awe. Okay. I asked a bunch of questions, didn't I? Let me get back to it. What does Malachi 2.16 mean? What is the context? Why does God hate divorce? Why is adultery, adultery, I can barely say it without more medicine. Why is adultery a punishable by death? Leviticus 20. The laws of adultery have a death penalty. Think about that. Adulterous behavior is subject to the death penalty. Why? Why is that the case? Do you suppose it has something to do with the Hebrew betrothal marriage ceremony? Because it's about adultery. How would we go about, by the way, trying, let's just quickly, just to go on a little rabbit trail here. How would I go about trying to solve the question, why does adulterous behavior have a capital or a death penalty clause to it? How would I solve that? How would I answer that? What would you do first? Yes, sir. He, he says for the Internet folks that it's a sin against the body. Okay, it is. But is that the reason that do all sins against the body have a death penalty clause to it? What's the first thing? Let me help you. The first thing I'm going to do when I have one of these kinds of questions, I'm going to go around and all over Scripture, and I'm going to accumulate all other what? I'm going to find all other death penalty offenses. I'm going to put all the death penalties together, aren't I? I'm going to look at every one of them, and I'm going to say, what do the death penalties have in common? See, uh, just think about it. If I give my child to Moloch, if I put, and Moloch was a, was a brass god, a paganistic god, and it was lit up and heated to super hot, red hot, and you know that red hot is a radiation, right? It's infrared, okay, as opposed to blue and white and all the rest of the hots, and it's black body radiation, and never mind. But you, you were not, he said, if you put your child into the burning hands of this pagan god and destroyed your child's physical body, if you did that, that is punishable by death. He said that if you, the cursing of the father and the mother, death penalty, the man who lies with his father's wife, what's called the uncovering of the father's nakedness, which takes you right back where in the Bible? Yeah, that's Noah and Ham, isn't it? So you have to put those together while you're putting the capital offenses together. Being a medium, trying, attempting to reach the fallen angelic realm, death penalty offense, mixing an animal with a woman. You see how those two are related? Those two are related. Being a medium, attempting to reach the fallen angelic realm and mixing an animal sexually or, or genetically with a woman, Genesis 6, Sodom, right? Judges 19. 
That is a death penalty offense. And that's just some we would gather. You go and you get all the capital offenses, you put them all together, and that's how you solve why adultery is a capital offense. Why there's the death penalty assigned to it. God ties these things together. We should find how they connect. Okay? I also asked last week, why is it that only the husband can file, only the husband can obtain, secure the bill of divorcement? And that, by the way, is a mystery right off the bat. Only the husband can do that in the Hebrew marriage betrothal system. Why is it only the husband can nullify the marriage contract? What is the doctrinal implications of that? If you have a doctrine that says someone other than the husband can nullify the marriage contract, then your doctrine is what? Wrong. Now, what does that mean to you? How many of you listening by Internet care that you're in conflict with the Hebrew betrothal ceremony? That is God-given, God-ordained. You love your doctrine. I know you do. None here. But I know on the Internet, boy, they're hitting me. They're going click, mute, bam. They're doing all they can. to. They have abandoned the download. Whatever that means. I just made it up because I have no idea how computers work. Beyond as a heating source and a light source. Though the other day, Lori has made it so that I can get emails from some of you, and it's really cool. She put it where I can find it, and then it goes there, and the password is already there. And all I have to do is push two buttons, and it shows up. Now, if I had to do anything more than that, I would not know anything about it or even care. And I maintained my record, as you know, of never having sent an email ever at any time. And so uh, I'll keep that for another 41 years, I hope. (sighs) But why is it that only the husband can file the bill of divorcement? Why is it only the husband can nullify the marriage contract? How do we reconcile, here's the key question, a bill of divorcement with the death penalty for adultery? How do we reconcile those two? How does the death penalty for adultery reconcile with John 8? What's John 8? John 8 is where the Pharisees bring one of their temple prostitutes. Did you know that she was a temple prostitute? I hope you did. So who did she work for? She worked for the Pharisees. The Pharisees. How is it that the Pharisees knew that she was an adulteress? They came out and testified against her to Christ. They said, we have found an adulteress. We have witnesses that she has committed adultery. Who did she commit adultery with? Her employers. Who were they? The Pharisees. How cool guys are they? They brought her out to have Christ execute her, knowing full well that she worked for them, along with many others. Which one did they pick, by the way? Did you ever think about that? How many temple prostitutes do you think they had? They picked one. Which one did they pick? When they lined them all up to pick one, did they know they were being picked? Did the temple prostitutes know that one of them was going to be selected to be taken out in front of the great rabbi, Jesus Christ, where he could proclaim them subject to the death penalty for adultery? Did they know that before they got chosen? Was it random? Was it thoughtful? Which one did they pick? Anyway, that's a rabbit trail too. I'm doing a lot of that today, aren't I? But the Pharisees, they bring out one of their temple prostitutes to Christ and they witness against her because they're the ones that would know, wouldn't they? And they have it's an attempt to have the death penalty for adultery imposed. Death by what? What are they going to kill her with? Stones. You ever ask why stones? Why is it death by stoning? Why stones? Who cries out, by the way, if no one else will testify? The stones will cry out. Anyway, that's just, you have to start connecting all your stones. Where do you go first for stones? Most people go where? They go to uh, David and Goliath and the five stones, don't they? Why five stones? Why not seven stones? Why not three stones? How many stones did God really need? One stone. So how come he picked five? Can't he hit him the first time? What's this got to do with the woman who was going to be killed by stoning? What is Christ called, by the way? What's one of the names of Christ? The rock, the cornerstone. What is this stoning stuff? How does it all fit together? Go around, gather it all, 
and you will figure it out. But that woman, that temple prostitute, she is a picture of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel uh, is in adultery, isn't it? And one of these days, every nation will take her outside, and you can read Ezekiel and see this picture, will take her outside and surround her to kill her. And who will save her? The returning Messiah will. She is prostituting herself with all of these killers in order to do what? To survive, thinking that she will survive doing this, when the truth is is they will surround her one day to kill her, and she will rely on her Messiah, whom she does not know, to save her. So she's a marvelous picture of Israel. Why is there even a provision for divorce? How do I, again, if the... If the if the death penalty is the is required for adultery, what do I need divorce for? Ever ask that question? Well, I must have some kind of need for divorce besides what? Adultery. Why didn't Israel receive the death penalty for adultery? Some people thought they did until when? 1948, baby. Why didn't Israel receive the death penalty for adultery? Just like that woman, she didn't. Those pretty much were the questions I threw out at you last Sunday in many forms, and not necessarily in any order or that order, but they were nonetheless there somewhere. Now let's look again really fast at these 12 steps. So get your 12 steps out of your bulletin. And let's just look at them one at a time. How far do you think we're going to get? Maybe we'll get to two, yeah? Maybe not. Okay, step one. The bride is selected by the father of the bridegroom. Powerful. That is powerful. I hope you, you look at that and go, oh, no. The bride is selected by the father of the bridegroom. The father sends the trusted agent to search out and gather the bride to teach. And this is what the agent is supposed to do. He goes to a faraway place, as far as he can go. He goes to a faraway place and he finds a bride and then he selects her. He searches for her, he gathers her, he selects her, and then he (coughs) adorns her with precious stone, jewels, puts earrings on her. And then his job is to teach her of the son that she has not seen. The agent builds a love in the bride for the son while the son is building the home for the bride. And that, by the way, is all the way back in Adam and Eve, and that's why Adam and Eve is so important, because God does what to Adam? He puts him into deep sleep, and deep sleep, excuse me, is a symbol for death. Puts him into death, and out of the side, Selah, not off of the rim, but a rib, but out of the side, the word means side, he builds the wife, or builds the woman. And so you see this building also in, um, in Scripture with regard uh, to a groom and the agent and the father and the wife. Eve was builded, uh, um, and without dispute, Genesis 24 is the primary illustration of this process where Rebecca is builded by Eliezer. Abraham selects Eliezer to search out and select Rebecca. Again, select Rebecca. And he adorns Rebecca. He teaches her about Isaac and he gets her and brings her back. She must consent to go with him. Uh-oh, select and consent. She must consent to marry Isaac even though she's never seen Isaac. Never seen him. Make the application to yourself. Here's where you're allowed to do so. This, now you can say this is about me. Because it is about you. You're in the bride. Have you ever seen the bridegroom? No. What are you required to do? You're required to what? Learn about him. An agent is building a love for him in you. Even though you've never seen him, you've never seen the Son. This is exactly 1 Peter 1.8. Let's read that really fast. How am I doing? Oh, lots of time. My goodness. I'm screaming through this thing today. Did you tell Sharon, Cindy, that sometimes I go for two hours and 45 minutes? Did you tell her? 
You did? Good for you. Thank you. Did you believe her, Sharon? Good. Good. I'm glad you didn't. Because I won't. I never go two hours and 45 minutes. It's about two hours, 31 minutes or so. I'm kidding about that, too. 1 Peter 1.8 Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Because that's the point. It is about glorifying God. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Notice the order. His glory, your salvation. That's the correct order. This is about God's glory, the glorification of Christ. It is then a result of, uh, for us of salvation. The plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, God is using the template uh, of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony almost everywhere in Scripture. It's very rare you can find a Scripture that does not have um, this ceremony in it. And that's the purpose of that list. Ruth Boaz and David Bathsheba, Hosea Gomer, Moses Zipporah, all of them, Judah Tamar. They may seem slightly dysfunctional to you, and they are, especially Samson and the Philistine wife and Delilah and Jacob, Leah and Rachel. All of those have this amazing element in it. And here's, and I want everybody to notice this. And this, I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, Werner from Switzerland, I'm bringing him up again because he asked the question about God's omniscience colliding with what? Man's free will. How is that resolvable? And I addressed it for a while. Well, Werner, here it is again. And again, thank you, Werner, for the kind words that you um, said and um, to the congregation and, and to me. We appreciate you very much. And so hi from us. Um, But here again is Werner's question. The father of the groom chooses the bride. Notice that. That is a free will decision in the case of the father, who is a symbol of who. He's a type of who in the ceremony. Who is the father? God is the father. And that is an omniscient, then, free will choice. His free will is not just free will. It is omniscient free will. I ask people all the time, does God have free will? Yes. He has omniscient free will. Now, I want you to meditate on that in your spare time. Now, some of you have read ahead already and have begun to wonder then about step five. I hope you have. I've kept beating it in where the consent of the bride is now required. She must drink, if you remember this as as much as I have um, rendered it in the past, she must drink from the offered cup of wine that is placed in front of her. The bridegroom comes, he places a cup of wine in front of her, and she must consent and drink from the wine. Who's behind her when she's doing that, do you suppose? Her father is. The father of the bride is behind her. The bridegroom comes, put the cup The bride takes from the cup and she has generally her father behind her. And by the way, this is Genesis 34. I was talking to Kathy uh, uh, Floyd just a few uh, before the sermon. And I said to her, if you understand the ceremony, you will find it all over the Bible. Genesis 34 is the Dinah incident. Dinah is taken and raped by Shechem. I hope you remember the sermon. It's on the Internet, I hope. Without her consent, right? She's just a young girl. I want you, by the way, a woman, a young girl taken and raped by force. By who? By a prince or a king in waiting. What, what does that remind you of? That's David and Bathsheba. It's the exact same story almost. Shechem raping Dinah, David raping Bathsheba. Same story, connected. And then after the rape, the father of Shechem, who is Hamor, comes to the father of Dinah. And what's he got to do now? He's got to negotiate the price. And he offers money. He's got to negotiate the price of the bride. Feel free to read Genesis 34 again. Genesis again and Jennifer. I don't know how those got together, but they did more, more medicine. But read Genesis 34 and start picking out the betrothal ceremony elements. Clearly, a bride price item number two was not established by that and was established after the fact 
When Dinah was taken and raped, there was no bride price. When Bathsheba was taken and raped, there was no bride price. What was the price for Bathsheba? You can do that. Huh? Yes, the husband's death. That's very good. The sacrificial death of Uriah happened there, who was a picture of Christ. Okay, so now I'm back in Genesis 34 with Dinah. The the price becomes what there? Hamar agrees to it. The, all of Shechem agreed to it. What is the price? Circumcision, wasn't it? Wasn't it the price? The price becomes circumcision, or what is also called the husband of blood. Anyway, that's a rabbit trail again. For now, it becomes problematic to harmonize, to accommodate the free will choice of the father of the groom and the free will consent choice of the bride to drink from the offered cup of wine. You have to harmonize those. And I hope you see Matthew 26, 27 here, where Christ says, says this, or it says this about him. Then he took from the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. There's your ceremony again. He gave it to them saying, drink from it. Consent to be in the bride, all of you. For this is my blood of the new contract. The new contract. What contract is it? Oh, look, it's number four. A marriage contract. Notice step four, the contract step. A marriage contract is required. See Exodus 19, Exodus 20. As I said uh, last week, um, I hope I said it last week, Moses comes down with two contracts. They're the same contract. A copy for the bride, a copy for the husband. In that case, God. Two contracts for Israel. That's what Exodus 19 and 20 are, is a marriage ceremony and there is a contract to be signed. And each one of them got a copy. What happened to the first contract, by the way? It was broken. Because of why? Because the betrothed did what? Committed adultery. How come the betrothed did not get the death penalty? 3,000 of them got the death penalty. How many, by the way, in the New Testament marriage ceremony at Acts with the church, the betrothal, how many were saved? 3,000. That's not a coincidence. The pattern is the pattern. It is the same in both places. If you don't know the Hebrew pattern, you will not understand anything about your Bible with regard to this issue. It's very important, by the way, to see the two fathers here. The father of the groom, the bridegroom, that's in step one. And the father of the bride is in step two. You have to see that those are, that's often misunderstood. Those are two different uh, people, so to speak. You see in this dramatic theodicy, this acting out by God, that's what a dramatic theodicy is. Um, these, these are great truths in his plan of salvation. The triune God is present here. And they switch around a bit and it can be confusing. But it's just like Genesis 15. It's just like Matthew 26, 36 through 52. It's just like Genesis 18, which is what? Sodom. It is what Abraham arguing for Sodom. Those are dramatic theodicies where God is teaching great truths. He's teaching about the collision of mercy and the collision of of holiness or justice. It's Numbers 16, 46 through 50 where, where Aaron runs into the plague with the... Holding the censer, all of number 16, actually. God the Father is the Father of the groom. That's evident. Jesus Christ, God the Son in the flesh, is the bridegroom. That is evident. I hope that's obvious to you. God the Holy Spirit is the agent. That's evident. What's the question then? Who then is the Father of the bride? Who stands behind the bride? You can figure that out. You have really only three choices, don't you? It's going to be God. Which one will it be? How many of you vote for God the Father is in both Father positions? Feel free to raise your hand here. There's hardly any cost at all. only thing at stake is your place in the buffet and your parking spot. That's all there is. 
Okay, who thinks that it is uh, Jesus Christ is standing behind the bride? Behind the bride during the price establishment process. He, he's the groom. It would seem that he wouldn't jump back and forth, but he could. How about the Holy Spirit stands behind the bride? Oh, there's lots of nods there. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Never raise your hand here. Okay, figure that out. Think about the arguments for and against it. Finally, we're going to read 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. I know you all love the word finally. Um, I don't blame you. Yes, Amanda, you can move without being yelled at and come up on stage. All of you stage people, come on up. It's okay. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. It's not always okay. It is okay this time. We play hand the baby. Hand the baby to the registered nurse. There was another registered nurse who works in pediatrics that is angry now that she did not get the baby. First okay. Peter one seventeen through twenty one. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. That's Hebrew betrothal ceremony. That, by the way, help you out. That is uh, uh, step nine. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. In other words, the price for you, the bride's price, was not corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. What tradition is that? It's the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, marriage ceremony. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's very important, by the way, because that is one of the places where it is assigned to God to raise the Son. By the way, we know that Christ, the Son, of the, in the triune Godhead, God the Son, said that he would raise himself. Here's one of the places he says that, by the way, when he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. So he raises himself up, God the Father raises him up, and God the Holy Spirit raises him up. You need to know all three parts of the Godhead are involved in the resurrection. That's very important. Give the baby to Charlotte. Yes. Took about 30, 40 seconds for that to happen. Should have known better, parents. Okay, I hope you also see step two, the price being blood. Jesus Christ is the husband of blood, Exodus 4, 25, 26. Let's rise and be dismissed.